You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. When Dorothy Parker was asked if she loved writing, she replied, No, but I love having written. What I wanted to say to this sweet woman was, Are you sure? Are you sure you don't mean that you love having parented? I love having written, and I love having parented. My favorite part of each day is when the kids are put to bed and Craig and I sink into the couch to watch some quality TV, like Wife Swap, and congratulate each other on a job well done or a job done, at least. Every time I write something like this, readers suggest that I'm being negative. I have received this particular message four or five times. Gee, if you can't handle the three you have, why do you want a fourth? That one always stings, and I don't think it's quite fair. Parenting is hard, just like lots of important jobs are hard. Why is it that the second a mother admits that it's hard, people feel the need to suggest that maybe she's not doing it right? or that she certainly shouldn't add more to her load. Maybe the fact that it's so hard means she is doing it right in her own way, and she happens to be honest. Glennon Doyle Melton is the creator of Momastery.com. Her new collection of essays is Carry On Warrior. Thank you for joining me, Glennon. Thank you for having me. You have such a wonderful voice in prose to read in this book. I'd like you to talk about discovering the written voice as within you, when did you just decide to start writing stuff down? Well, I've written all of my life, but I started to write formally after an experience that I had on the pl- on a playground with another mom. I was sitting um, with her on a bench, and we were talking to each other, but we weren't really talking to each other. We were talking about unimportant things like highlights and soccer practice and I really liked this mom and I wanted to get to know her the real her and so I decided just to sit down with her and tell her my whole real story I told her about my struggles with addiction and depression and my struggles with being a mom and a good wife and I saw her face kind of freeze up in shock and then she ended up telling me her whole story And I just got to see the power of how truth can unlock another person. And so I decided to start telling the truth, the real truth, in my personal life. And then I decided to start writing the same way. And so I started a blog because at at this point, writing a blog is a really good way to test out a writing voice and see if people react to it or not. And people did. When you first started to tell your own story. You have a very interesting sense of story. So I'd like you to talk about deciding to tell stories that were the truth when what most people tell as the truth is actually a kind of fiction. So you're kind of coming at the normal storytelling mode of fiction with truth when what we perceive as truth is fiction. It's a kind of inversion of what we expect often from storytellers. That's interesting. That is really interesting. I've never thought of it that way before. You know, my writing process is that I have an experience 
and I know that there's some kind of nugget of truth in that experience. And it usually takes me several days to figure out how that little story in my life represents something that is universal for all of us. So I always wait until I can figure out how it's not just a story about me, but it's a story about everyone, and then I write it. One of the things that I love about the essays in this book is the length and the way you tell the story, the way you delve into yourself, and the way that you bring us to a conclusion, you know, quickly. You you know seem to know how to tell an anecdote and connect it to something outside of itself in a pretty compact manner. And I'm wondering, do these things just pour off the tip of your pen that way? Or do you like write and rewrite? Because your voice seems so authentic and the authenticity in your voice would be, I would think, maybe at odds with the process of rewriting. Or does rewriting allow you to just more peel away and find what's really authentic? An essay always comes out in complete form the first time I sit down. I always know exactly the story I want to tell and the truth that I want to connect it to. It's in like one little package. And so I usually get the whole thing down on paper and it's really, it's complete, but not necessarily well written. And then the next day I go back and clean it up and it's done. Now, one of the things I think that is is interesting as we read this book, there are a lot of characters in it, and you are the primary character in it. And you create a, a picture of yourself that feels raw and real. Uh, and that one of the things I like is your willingness to seek imperfection. <laughs> and this is not something that is usually sought. So, and this is a deliberate decision you made to, to seek out the truth. But it's one thing to make that decision. It's another thing to find those bits of imperfection that are actually entertaining enough for us to read and say, yeah, I get that and I like this. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, I, the parts of me, I mean, I guess I wish that all of us found ourselves a little bit more amusing. I think that most of the ridiculous things that I do that are part of my personality, I could beat myself up about them or I could write a hilarious story about them. And that's... That's how I deal with my personality. I try to turn myself into a character and enjoy myself. Well, I, you know, I, I really, that's one of the things I think that makes your, your blog so popular. As you were, you know, starting this, did you have any expectations or where, what kind of service did you choose? Did you just go on, was it WordPress or did you buy your own website? The mechanics of, of putting together a blog can be pretty simple or you can go make it more elaborate. Well, the way it first started was I knew I wanted to start writing. When I had three kids under the age of five, I felt myself slipping a little bit. I started to feel a little bit crazy, and I felt very isolated at home. And I kind of felt myself drifting back to some of the feelings I had that led me into addiction in the first place. And that scared me. And so I thought maybe one way that I could um, maintain truth and contact with, the real, with my real self was to write every day. So I started writing and sending essays to my friends each day. And my poor friends had to read everything that I write, wrote and respond to me every day. So one day, one of my friends said, you know, Glennon, there's a thing called a blog that you can write. And then we won't have to write back to you every single day. So I started a blog. And we just um, started on Blogger. And it was a very small, I named the blog Momastery because 
I have always been fascinated with religious traditions and have studied them my whole life. And at the time, I was studying a lot about monasteries. And I was really, really interested in the idea of sort of separating from the world and um, being in a place where all you had to do was read and listen and be quiet. And I was also, I had three kids under the age of five, so I used to just dream about running away to a silent monastery. And so that's how we came up with Momastery. We were on Blogger for for a long time and it was just a small community of about 1400 women who met there every day and just talked about the joys and difficulties of parenthood and marriage and were extremely honest with each other and our only rule was we treat each other how we want to be treated so there was no snarkiness which was unusual for a blog at that time Um, and then the traffic started getting heavier. We had never done, I've never done any promotion or advertising on my blog at all because I really wanted it to be a safe place for women where they didn't feel targeted, where they didn't feel like there was any ulterior motive there. So we, so it did stay very small. And then Amy, who works on the blog, she changed us over to WordPress. And when she changed us over to WordPress, she added share buttons to the bottom where you can press share and share something on Facebook. The second day we had that format, I wrote an essay called Don't Carpe Diem, and it went viral. I think it was shared close to half a million times from the blog. So that's really when everything took off. Uh, That's one of your strongest pieces, I think, um, because that really gets at one of the truths that so many parents find is that being a parent is, and this is a lot of what the writing in here is about, is not it's not easy and it's not 100% fun and there's very few people who are going to look back fondly at the times when they were changing their child's diapers on the curb while taking them to a Clive Barker signing and Santa Monica and just scooping out things and, and cloth diapers and whatever so I'd like you to talk about you know that that's a kind of a difficult thing to say I guess it is, but I don't understand why it's a difficult thing to say because it's so painfully obvious that parenting is not enjoyable all of the time. I think, I don't know where this idea came from that every moment of it, it's supposed to be peace and ecstasy. Um, You know, being a mom is the most important job I've ever had and I wouldn't have it any other way, but it is hands down the hardest job I've ever had physically, mentally, emotionally. And I think it becomes harder when we're expected to constantly pretend it's not hard. The only thing that has made it easier for me, in fact, actually has made it easier for me, is this community at Monastery. The people who will come together and admit that, yes, it's magical, but it's also grueling um, much of the time. Um, And continues to be, whether they're toddlers or teenagers, that that um, it, it is one of the most physically, mentally, and emotionally draining jobs that you can have, as are lots of wonderful and important jobs. And just because it's hard doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. It's just supposed to be hard. Now, when you've got Momastery going, you have 1,400 people. They're all talking. They all want to hear from you. Uh, this kind of comment feedback thing can be an incredible time sink mm-hmm. and I'm wondering how if you ever felt that way about the blog that you felt about parenthood that you've got all these people coming at you for just expecting you know wisdom humor 
truth. There's are sometimes when you just like want to hide under a blanket and and oh, I spend a lot continuously. I wonder if you have done your homework because I actually spend a lot of time under blankets. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of my favorite places to be, and in fact, the blog has driven me to bed (laughs) several hundred times. Um, You know, one of my favorite writers is Anne Lamott, and she said. The great thing about being a writer is that they can't boo you right away. But the blog world has changed all of that. There is immediate feedback all the time. And that's that can be wonderful, but it can also be very, very hard to every single day put yourself out there and then immediately have hundreds of people telling you if they like you that day or not. Um, so keeping an even keel, I do not tend to be an even keeled person. So this has been a challenge for me for sure. And I just try to remember, my dad used to always tell me, you're never as good as you think you are, and you're never as bad as you think you are. So I try to keep the praise and the criticism out as much as possible. One of the things that you discuss in the book is your, your struggles with addiction. And I think you do a good job of showing how that kind of happens, that kind of snowball effect, especially in a world now where it's so easy to go from one drug to the next to the next and just build up and up and up. So I'd like you to talk about confessing that and the power of confession and the power of confession to suck you into a world where you're always confessing. Mm, mm-hmm. Well, ironically, confession is a little bit addictive. <laughs> Now that you say it that way, um, gosh, I mean, you know, when I first started writing, I I had posted a really personal essay on the blog, and my dad called me in the morning, and he said, Glennon, don't you just think there are some things you should take to the grave? And it was this very defining moment for me, because I know that is what he believes, and I really don't believe that. I really don't believe that there's anything Um, in my past or in anyone's past that is so shameful that they need to carry it around with them for the rest of their lives. I mean, there there are many people who relate to me because of my addictions, but I think most just relate because everybody knows that they have some sort of hiding place where they go when life gets too hard, whether it's perfectionism or overworking, um, just some place that can become dangerous. I think hiding places can become really dangerous because tragically we are wired for connection with other people. So um, I really just think of my addiction as it was a result of being an extremely sensitive person and not having any clue how to deal with that sensitivity. And I think the sensitivity an intensity that led me to addiction is the same sensitivity and, and um, intensity that leads me to write the way I do and that leads me to care so much about this community of women and that sort of drives my whole career right now. So I don't think I've changed at all. I think I w- I'm the same exact personality that I did when I was seven years old, which is sort of frustrating <laughs> but also comforting. Um, I just, if I ever have something that feels shameful, that's a, that's a red flag for me, as it is for all addicts. That's a dangerous place to be, is feeling shameful. So the second I have a feeling that feels shameful, I write about it. And what happens is thousands of other women say, me too, me too, me too, me too. 
And I learn over and over again that the stuff inside of me is not bad. It's just human. And we all figure that out together. So it is addictive because it helps me feel safer on this earth. One of the things you write is that people who need help sometimes look a lot like people who don't need help. And I think that's a, a really interesting observation, because, especially given your penchant for suggesting that the niceties that grease the wheels of social interaction get in the way of us being ourselves and saying, God, I, you know, I'm, I'm in terrible shape, really. How are you? I'm in terrible shape, man. Mm -hmm. I, I really need some help. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And, you know, I think part of my armor, part of my defensive um, strategy in my way of convincing the world that I'm okay is that I try to dress nice and keep my hair nice and do my makeup. And that is a really good way of tricking the world. It worked for me for several decades. Um, and I think two that... Two or three at, two right, at most. Two at most, right. It felt like 12 decades. <laughs> um, so I do think that in our culture, we do think that if a woman is attractive, that she has it all together. I don't know why it's so hard to break that um, belief, but I think that one's pretty well ingrained. One of the things I think that is interesting about this book is the idea of confession and forgiveness that kind of runs through it constantly. There are, all of the essays have that undercurrent there are, because they are all confessions, but also there's this idea of forgiveness. And, and I think that you make a, a great point that the first person we have to forgive is ourselves. Absolutely. I truly believe that that's the most important thing to me, period is the idea of that grace, just total forgiveness, un forgiveness that you don't deserve, is um, the only way I know how to live. Because it seems like people are broken. We all are broken. We all make mistakes. And so the second we start expecting anyone to be perfect, we're setting ourselves up for misery. Because nobody's going to do that for us, including ourselves. And I think the people who are most angry at others are always the people who are not able to forgive themselves. And I think the people who are most graceful to others are always the people who forgive themselves. That's one of the things too, I think, that you do very well in this book and on your site is you, you talk about advice and people who seek advice. Somebody, you're, you're a person to whom Many people come for advice. How do I fix this? How do I fix that? And I think the absolutely the best and most important observation you make, for me at least in this book, is that when somebody approaches you wanting advice, all they really want you to do is shut up and listen. Amen. I, every time I tell someone about a problem that I'm having and they give me advice, I feel so icky and I just wish I never talked to them about the problem. Because it makes me feel like they're like one-upping me. Like they think they know more than I do. Or sometimes we just need to share our problems and our challenges with another human being so that we can hear ourselves talk. So as we talk, we figure out the answer. We just need a witness for that whole process. And I don't know, people ask me for advice every single day. 
lots of people on the blog. And I have literally never offered anyone advice besides forgive yourself. I say that all the time, forgive yourself. Um, I think people just want a safe, non-judgmental witness to be there and listen. Now, one of the things that is interesting to me is that you're used to as a writer being live online, you know, like a, a live performer, essentially, like a, a, a musician who plays a lot of live gigs. Mm -hmm. uh, a book is like a record where it's just there and people are going to play it again and again. And, and one of the things that's nice about your book, in that analogy to the record, there's lots of songs that people can play again and again, lots of little essays in there that people will reread again and again. I'd like you to talk, tell me, did you, how much of this was shaped was shaped for the book? Did you change this stuff? And just even talk a little bit about your feelings about seeing essentially your live performances cast into vinyl, as it were. I found it at first to be completely terrifying. And I wasn't, I was surprised by my reaction to it. I'm used to being able to post an essay on the blog and then the second I get uncomfortable with how truth it, truthy it is, I can just post something else and it's gone, sort of. Um, the book, when I first got it, I put it on my shelf and I didn't touch it or look at it until someone came to me and said, you're going to start being interviewed and you need to remember what's in the book. And so I was forced to read it. And, you know, 60% of what's in the book are essays that have previously been posted on Monastery, reworked but have been previously posted there. They're essays that were the most shared, the most loved on the blog, and they're essays that I knew I could never release my first book without them being in there because they're how I became a writer were those essays that I posted, that I told my story in. Um, now that it's a book and it's just out there, I mean, I don't know. It, I've heard authors um, talk about their books as like their babies, and I always thought that was so silly. And now I sort of feel like that. I mean, I have kids and every day I just have to, you know, let them go out into the world and see what happens. <laughs> That's how I feel about the book. I just feel like it's out there. It's completely out of my control now. And I hope it does some good. Well, you know, the way that you are talking about your writing and the book, I'd say that maybe for you, it's not so much a child, but uh, a self-portrait. And on one hand, it's a, I guess the difference between looking in the mirror and taking a picture and that picture is out there and it can't change even though you can and will change. And, I, and I'm wondering for you as a writer, as you write your blog after the book and write about the book tour and you know, your life takes a really different turn, you're, you're no longer... Um, I guess the underdog mom telling the truth. Now you're kind of you're on the Today Show. That's <laughs> that's a that's a different uh, version and vision of yourself. And that is so true. I mean, that's when I already I read the book now and think, oh my gosh, you know, my my spirituality is constantly evolving. So when I read some of those essays in the book, they don't seem like me where I am now with my spirituality. And so it is, it's, 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 it's scary. It's a, like sending a representative of yourself from five years ago out into the world to represent you. Uh, since we're always growing, your representative from five years ago might not be your best bet. 
<laughs> but this is how the book works. I think that it's a pretty good overall representation of who I am. So I'm happy with that. But you're so right. It's like having a, a self-portrait that people are carrying around, deciding whether they like the way you look or not. <laughs> Terrifying. You mentioned your spirituality, and I think that's one of the things you deal with really, really well in this book. You make your beliefs, your spirituality, your Christianity, you make them plain, you're honest about them, but you have a, a way of writing about them that doesn't press them in a way. You're not trying to, we never feel like you're trying to sell it. You're just trying to show it. And I think that must be difficult for you. You know, it's actually not at all difficult for me to do that because as a spiritual person, I only think of myself as a student of spirituality. I could never in a million years switch over to teacher. I am completely um, in love with learning about all different spiritual traditions. It's actually my favorite thing to do. Um, and I just think of myself as a constant and dedicated learner student. Um, and so I think that, you know, at Monastery, we have kind of, we all learn together and nobody feels preached to because none of us consider ourselves teachers. We're all just sort of on the journey together. You also talk quite a bit about God in this book. So I'd like you to talk about the God-shaped hole in your life and how attempting to fill that hole changed who you were or not. So I guess it didn't change who you were it just allowed you to actually see who you, in fact, were. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, what I think what I mean by the God-shaped hole is just the feeling of emptiness that I have, that I had when I was young, that I thought was wrong. I thought there was something wrong with me because I was lonely and sad and afraid a lot of the time. So that would be my God-shaped hole, those feelings of fear and inadequacy and insecurity. And I just thought that that was wrong, that, that, was, that everybody else was fine and didn't have those things. Um, and so I tried to fix it with um, drugs and food and alcohol and you know, every, the whole list. Um, but I think what I'm learning now is I still have the exact same hole that I had when I was eight. I still have pressing insecurity and fear and anger and um, loneliness, all of that. But I think what I'm figuring out is that those feelings are what drive my art and those feelings are what drive me to connect with other people even though I'm an extreme introvert and would prefer to stay home constantly. Those feelings of loneliness are what drive me to make friendships and the pain and loss that I feel are what drive my um, service and charity work on the blog. And so I think I'm learning that instead of trying to fill that hole or those holes, that it's okay just to leave them be and just let yourself feel them and let good come out of them. Well, I, obviously one of the goods that's come out of this for you is, is your writing. And I'm wondering if you talk about when you sit down to write, is this a, a spiritual experience for you? Where do you go in yourself to, to do that? And, and just as a matter of physicality, is it on a typewriter or a keyboard or do you write on a pen and paper? That's a very different form of self-expression. I write on my computer. 
I write only first thing in the morning. I feel like there's a moment, there's an hour, a two hour period first thing in the morning where I have everything figured out. And then everyone else wakes up and I forget everything. <laughs> and I go about my day. But there is the sacred morning time where I feel like it's outside on my kitchen table and no one's awake yet and it's just me and my coffee and God and this, um, you know, it almost feels liturgical to me, which is another reason why I started calling the blog Momastery because it's almost like a daily meditation really, um, that writing time. And I've tried so hard, you know, I'm on deadline and I try, I try to write in the evening and it never works for me. Are the deadlines self-imposed? No, I never impose deadlines on myself. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things this book does very well is uh, discuss intimacy uh, with your children, with your husband, with your friends, and with yourself. And I think that that's the hardest job of the writer is to write intimately about themselves, and that's what you do best. There's a huge array of intimate issues that you may or may not want to talk about. But you only have so much time to write. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how you know which ones bubble up out of your consciousness to say, this is something that I need to commit to words. I just know. I always know what, because I don't have a strategy <laughs> or a plan. Whatever I'm writing about is what I have to be dealing with in my life at that moment. So it's more of a reflection of my life. If, um, if I'm dealing with intimacy with my husband, that's what I'm going to be writing about because that's how I think. I think through writing. Um, that's how I work out my problems or um, that's how I make my next decision is through my writing. So whatever is gnawing on my soul that day is what I'm writing about. You, there's a lot of humor in this book. It's very funny, and that's one of the things I think that makes it and your blog so popular. Humor that is joyous and fun, not mean-spirited, mm -hmm. because there's, it's easy for humor to turn mean-spirited. Absolutely, and that is one of the biggest commitments that I've made in my writing, is that I want to be funny, because humor is my, my first coping strategy in life and I, there's no quicker way to bring people together than to make them laugh but I always pr I promised myself that I would never use humor at anyone else's expense I think that's sort of an easier way to go um, but I you know I, I in my writing I really do try to first do no harm <laughs> in my writing it's important to me and um, I try to never uh, cross over a line that would hurt someone else in humor. And you know what? The funniest things are not the thing, the jokes that are made at other people's expense. The funniest things are things you notice about life that are so awful or ridiculous that you find a little sliver of it that's hilarious. And if it's true enough, everybody else will recognize it and laugh too. And that's what happens with those stories in Target. I mean, just the word Target can strike the fear of God into women, I mean, into mothers. <laughs> Everybody's had a child have a tantrum at Target. So um, I do, I mean, humor is the way that I've made it through life. My parents taught it to me early as a coping strategy, 
It's one of my the most important parts of my writing, but I won't do it at anyone else's expense. It has to be victimless humor. One of the things you talk about is having an in case of emergency person and being a case in case of emergency person. And I'd like you to talk about both both sides of the coins, the times you've needed one and the times you've been one and how one informs the other. Mm, well, my in case of emergency, we call the we call each other in case of emergency because someone once told us to put ICE and a phone number in our cell phone so that if there was ever a, something horrible happened and a stranger picked up the phone, they would know who to call. Um, and my sister is my in case of emergency. And as an example, we just we're we're just always saving each other. And um, when I decided to get sober, when I found out that I was pregnant with my first child. Um, my sister picked me up at my house and she took me to my first AA meeting and at the AA meeting they gave me a brochure that had a bunch of questions. You might be an alcoholic if you drink five or more drinks at a sitting. You might be an alcoholic if you drink in the morning. You might be an alcoholic. And of course I, I was yes, 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 yes. And my sister looked at me and said, I don't know if AA is going to be good enough. We might need AAA. And that's just an example of how we no matter how bad it is, we are laughing about it. And that night, she took me home, and I was shaking and sweating because I hadn't had a drink for, whatever, four hours. And we sat down in my bedroom, which was a pigsty because that's how I lived when I was a drunk. And she just stood up and started picking up every single piece of clothing that was on the floor. She dumped out every ashtray. She cleaned the booze bottles under the bed. And I just sat and watched her and she cleaned up the entire room and it she sat back down on the bed with me and held my hand and we cried and it was just what she does for me all the time it was just a okay I'm gonna help you clean up your mess and we're gonna start over together and I love that story because it's just a metaphor for what we do for each other all the time when she um, found out that she was getting a divorce. I was in the room with her, um, and she found out over email, which is a long story, and she crumbled on the ground, and I covered her, and we cried on the floor for a very long time, and then we stood up together and started a new life. And I just, I wish for everyone to have an in case of emergency. I don't know how to make it through this life without one. One of the things you brought up your sister, and she's a great character in this book, and it's it's fun to, to, whenever your sister shows up, it's fun to read about her. And I'd like you to talk about turning your family and friends into characters, uh, and they are characters. I mean, they're characters in the very classic book sense, which means you have to leave a lot out, and yes. maybe you have to put in, highlight things. It's not this is not a photograph, it's a painting. Mm -hmm. And I'd like you to talk about deciding what colors go into the painting. Mm. Well, in the same way that I um, use humor um, and keep that victimless, I would, you know, writing keeps me going, but I would stop it before I would hurt my family. Um, I remember reading in Bird by Bird by Anne Lamont again, she said, you must write like your parents are dead. <laughs> I, I won't do that. <laughs> That's the one piece of advice from her that I won't take. 
Um, because it's just another form of grace to me. I mean, I've made so many ridiculous mistakes in my life, and it's okay for me to document them, but if my family did, I'd be devastated. Um, and so you, there's a dedication to my mom in the beginning of the book just about what a strong woman she is. And she pulled me aside a few days ago and she said, Glennon, I know I made so many mistakes as a mom and I'm just so grateful that you had the grace and love to find the good things and put them in the book. And so there's nothing in the book that's not completely 100% true, um, but the colors that I use are the most beautiful colors in each of my family members. Um, I treat them in the book the way that I would want to be treated. One of the things I think that is, is really fun to read about in the book is not to put too fine a point about it, you're at least at the beginning, your ineptitude and disinclination to be uh, a perfect mom in terms of laundry and some of the other and <sighs> cooking and you're uh, you constantly <laughs> disavow cooking and I think that's it's really fun to it's refreshing to find somebody who just says flat out I don't like that stuff and I'm not interested in it. I don't know what my problem is I don't know why I mean it's so not a problem that's what okay. make, you make it not a problem okay. which is what I'm makes so it so glad. refreshing I'm so glad it's not a problem I mean it might be a slight problem for my children <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I don't know. I just think that all of us have gifts and all of us have things that we should never do. And cooking is just something that I should never do. I mean, I have started kitchen fires. I have, I have poisoned people. I have caused food poisoning for people that I love in the kitchen. So it's, it's not just something I don't like to do. It's actually a hazard to people I love. So out of love for them... I stay out of the kitchen. You spend a lot, must spend a lot of time uh, online, and you also spend a lot of time with your family. Do you, do you sleep well? And, and also, there's two different very kinds of interactions, both, both very intimate and very different ways. You can save super intimate things and hear super intimate things through email and in blogs and in comments. And that's, they're just as powerful and disturbing and wonderful and joyous as they are the things your uh, family will say to you. And I, that's, but they're very different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, about the online thing, I, I sign off, my husband makes fun of me for how often I am online. And um, I will sign off for the night and say I'm going to bed and then he'll come into the room and catch me under the covers with my iPhone back on the f online again. So there might be a couple issues there <laughs> <laughs> with online addiction. We'll deal with that another year. But um, people, uh, because I tell my stories so honestly, I do receive amazingly intimate stories from women all over the world. And I actually spend half of my day every single day reading letters. I read every letter that I get on email. And I mean, I just, it's, it's, it can be, it can be draining, but I also feel like that's the fuel that keeps me going. And all of those me too's that people send me about their experiences and their feelings just make me more convinced that we are all the same. 
and that we all need the same things. We need connection and comfort and encouragement. And um, it just makes me, it's, it's, it's an honor. It, it really is an honor to hold so many stories and secrets inside of me from women all over the world. It's one of my favorite parts of my job. Well, now you talk about all, women all over the world. You're an American born and bred, and we have a very different, and to a certain degree, very insular culture. I'm wondering if you find the limitations of where you live and the country you lived in and just how that contains what you can conceive of um, when you're talking to people who come from completely different circumstances and with completely different potentialities. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do, I do believe that the feelings we experience are the same no matter where we are, and that's been confirmed to me hundreds of times over from women in all different countries. But I will say that through my journey to adopt, we've tried to adopt for six years in, in many different countries, and I certainly, certainly learned. Um, I got a crash course in how little I know about other cultures and how careful um, I need, we all need to be to not project our own um, thoughts and culture onto anyone else. But that I've learned more from my adoption journey. Um, the way that I write, I think, I certainly am not political. I, I sort of speak my soul to someone else's soul. That's the type of writing I try to do. And that seems to be pretty universal. One of the things that you do well in this book in terms of your blogging style is you have these open letters. I like that style. Mm -hmm. So I'd like you to talk about how much the kind of letters that you write to your children and your husband and the messages you give them and the way you communicate with them even overall, how much of that is influenced by the way you communicate online? Mm. Well, my father communicates with us through letters. Since I was a year old, every single Christmas and birthday he's written me sort of a letter just reflecting on the year before, talking about his feelings about being a dad that year, recording what I've done and how I've grown that year. He still does it to this day. Every single year I get a beautiful letter from him about my life, really. So it sort of reads like a gorgeous biography of our relationship. And we're not always good at talking, my dad and I. We don't talk really about the things that are in our letters. We're just better at writing out our feelings. And so those letters are just the way I've always done it. Those are letters that I've written to my kids that I just decided to post online. Um, it's just the way my family communicates, really. You know, it strikes me, too, that you have, you know, the, the, your most important relationships with your husband and with your children and your family, and you have this, they all have this competition of the other relationships you have online. When Craig's peeling up the blanket and you're posting your finds you online. It's, I know it's like it's, I'm cheating on him. Yeah, that's the, does he feel that way? <laughs> I think so. I do think, I mean, I don't think he really thinks I'm cheating on him, but I do definitely feel that tension lately. Um, you know, it's probably a tension that most working parents feel, this competition between am I giving him enough, am I giving work enough, if I'm with him I'm worried about work, if I'm at work I'm worried, I'm thinking about him. I mean I think that all working parents face that. Um, but yes, it maybe some, maybe some people don't have the intimacy at work that I do with my readers. 
So, yeah, I do think there's a little bit of jealousy there. Reading this book is kind of interesting because we get to read somebody else's diary. (laughs) (laughs) Usually they're locked up. Right, that's right. You have to sneak it out from under the drawers. Right, and I just went ahead and put mine in the bookstores. (laughs) You want yours to put yours in the bookstores. When you're writing these kind of diary entries, and you know you're you're anticipating that this diary it's on, it's online. As you expose yourself and expose the truth, do you think, oh, if I'm going to write this instead of just like writing the truth, why don't I just change who I am so then I can write something that's a little bit, you know, better? Oh yeah, I mean that's, I mean I sometimes my kids will say something and I'll be and I'll think to myself, oh man, I wish you would have just said it that way because it would have been so much funnier, you know? I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's the difference between a diary and a memoir, right? Sometimes it's a little spiced up. But, I mean, the truth is that this book is not my diary. This book is, I just, what I, what I do is that I use myself to try to talk about all of us. And that's why it's connected with so many women. Because that's why women say to me, oh my gosh, it's like you were in my head. Oh my gosh, that's my story. Because I don't even write anything until I know that, it's, that I've found a way to make it universal. So I hope that it's not just my diary. I hope it's that, that it's the story of sort of all of us, just with my particular path. Well, let's flip that around. When you're writing to be so universal and finding that in yourself, doesn't that, I guess, maybe dilute your sense of self? So you start to wonder, am am I just like a jellyfish? Well, I hope I'm not a jellyfish, but I do, I'm completely convinced that we all have our unique circumstances and our quirks, but at our cores, we're the same. And that has been confirmed to me for the last five years on our on my blog and through the responses to this book um, and I don't mean that I try to be like everyone else I just mean like you mentioned the smelly coffee guy the uh, essay I wrote about yoga and it, it's it's a ver- about a very silly specific experience that I had where I'm trying to get some peace from my kids in the yoga studio and this man sits next to me who's smelly and he keeps coughing and he's messing up my zen and making me crazy and that is one silly story but I also know that that moment that we have has more there's a universal message there about trying to find peace in the midst of chaos because we never really get to the point where there is nothing disturbing us there's always something disturbing us how do we find peace even while we're being disturbed so that's what I mean I mean I try to take the little anecdotes from my life and think what does this mean for all of us when you decided to put together the book or were asked to put together the book, on one hand, you have all these blog entries and, and they're good and you kind of, you already probably know in your mind you can rank them, which ones you want to go in. But going back and putting them together and kind of revising them to make them more book-like and putting them together, I'd like you to talk about that experience, how you felt about that and how, you know, that kind of journey down memory lane did that, you know, that must have been kind of sweet and, and nostalgic and maybe a little disturbing, too. All of those things, yes. It was sweet and nostalgic and disturbing. <laughs> That's exactly right. Because we change so much. And 
we don't know how much we change until we can really look at ourselves. Like I, you know, I put every single essay I'd ever written out on the floor of my bedroom. It was, my floor was covered with essays and I was just looking at them, figuring out which ones, which ones tell the story of my life the best. And I could just see how, how much had changed in the last few years. And then after I picked the ones that I knew told my story the best, I had to admit to myself that there was a lot I hadn't talked about yet. That even, even though I'd, I'm known for putting it all out there, that there was plenty that I hadn't put out there. And most of that had to do with my marriage, which is why I wrote so personally and um, in a different way about my marriage in the book. Um, I had not written about my sister's divorce because I needed to, I just needed to process all of that. I needed to talk to her about what she was comfortable with. Um, there were there were just so many things that seemed more appropriate for a book than for a blog. Um, and so I got to go through that and figure, you know, a book is kind of a standalone work of art, whereas a blog is in real time and um, just so, so different. So... Um, you know, yeah, just figuring out what pieces of me I wanted to put together into one work of art to represent me was nostalgic and disturbing. <laughs> yes. You must realize that at this point in your life, you're kind of at a break point on uh, what uh, would be called a singularity in that everything that came before this point might have sent you in one direction and a, a fairly normal and satisfying direction because of the popularity of this book the popularity of this blog your life has now gone off in a completely different direction and it's i would think maybe to you somewhat unpredictable or maybe you don't want to predict it i'm wondering if you talk about knowing that you're in the midst of an enormous change in your life and, and maybe is it for the better or who knows? I think the answer to that is who knows and honestly it's really scary to me. I mean, you know, I started the blog to um, process, to stay sober, <laughs> to connect with other women. Never in a million years would I have predicted this, being in this situation right now. I think that my sobriety and my recovery has taught me the best lessons that will carry me through this process, which is all I can do is keep showing up and just keep doing the next right thing. When I start thinking about what does all of this mean forever, that's what will send me right under the covers. <laughs> I have to stay in the moment completely and just learn from every single person that is, I'm lucky enough to be um, to meet during this process and you know I keep saying I don't know where all of this is going but I know how I'm gonna get there which is the way which is how I've done this blog from the very beginning I'm just gonna show up I'm gonna tell the truth I'm gonna be kind to myself and others and that way the means will justify whatever end whatever end comes I've been speaking with Glennon Doyle Melton. Her new book is Carry On Warrior. Thank you for joining me, Glennon. Thank you so much. This has been great.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.